Where do fish store their money? In a riverbank. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to Starting Sustainability, Episode 77. I am your host, Kaylin Chenoweth. So much has been going on this past week. I didn't talk about it too much because I've talked about it a lot in the past, so I gave you guys a break, but the Here We Grow Again sale has come and gone. It was last weekend, and I submitted 90 items to resell at the sale, and I successfully sold 43 of those items, and the rest all went to donations. So win-win for everybody. I got stuff out of my house, I got paid for all the work that I did, and everything that was left over that didn't sell that went to donations, I now have an itemized list receipt, and I can use that on my taxes. Badoom ching <laughs> I also recently discovered that Morningstar Farms, which you've not heard of them, they are a popular vegetarian, vegan, plant-based meat substitute company. They'll have hamburgers and hot dogs and breakfast sausage and all of that stuff. Their Chipotle black bean burger is one of my favorites. It's delicious. Anyways, when you go to their website, because I had to go there for, actually, it was related for work. <laughs> and I discovered that they have a, it's called the Veggie Effect Calculator. When you go to the website, and I'll have the link in the show notes, and you can get show notes at www.startingsustainability.com backslash episode 77. Anyways, you click the link, you can go to Morningstar Farms website to the Veg Effect Calculator, and basically you plug in how many times each week you swap out meat and you use veggies as your entree portion instead as your protein source, and it will generate out how much water, greenhouse gas emissions, and square feet of land have been saved just because you went meatless for one meal or five meals, 10, 20, whatever is each week. It's really, really cool. And also if you have a family, then you can plug in the numbers for all of the family members as well, which now doubles or triples or quadruples depending on how big of a family you have. It's kind of cool to go check it out and just see what effects you're having by all of your efforts each time you skip meat. I did get my new Meow Meow Tweet deodorant, and I got the Lemon Eucalyptus fragrance. I got a stick version, which is kind of cool because usually I've been getting jars with a little cream that you got to spread on with your fingers. So now I have a stick version. It comes with a little cardboard tube, which is awesome. <laughs> Think of when you're a little kid and you had a push pop with the cardboard tube and you had to keep pushing it up. It's like that, except it's not as much work. It's a lot easier to push the deodorant stick up and down in that cardboard tube. You do have to hold it in place though, because you can push it up and the moment that you push it on your arm, it just kind of slides right back down. And now you're just rubbing the raw cardboard edge on your armpit, which does not feel good. So you have to <laughs> push it up and hold it as you apply it. But anyways, I've been doing a lot of experiments and giving it a good throw test. And I did a workout. I went swimming. I hung out in the yard and played with my kids. I skipped showers. Now I apply deodorant pretty much every 12 hours. I do it every morning and then I do it every evening right before bed. So just about every 12 hours I'll put it on. And I found that it is working very, very well for the first and second application. Third application, you'll get a little moisture, perspiration in your armpits. And by the fourth one, the good news is you still don't smell bad, 
but you'll be wet. The perspiration is there. So around the fourth application. So once you hit the 48 hour mark, you got to take a shower and clean your armpits and then start all over again. But hey, still an improvement compared to the previous zero waste deodorant brands that I have tried. Not quite as good as the wasteful plastic based ones, but even doing a hybrid system of zero waste deodorant for the first few applications until it no longer works and then the wasteful kind, <laughs> at least it's a reduction in it. Hey, the zero part of zero waste is hard. I'm just gonna keep on trying, just keep trying. At least I'm successful in other areas of my life. And that includes diapers. <laughs> the reason I bring that up is because yesterday my sitter called off sick at 4 a.m. So I had very little notice to find another sitter and don't worry, I do have three or four people on my backup list, but I didn't realize how spoiled I was from coronavirus because everybody on my backup list was now back at school full-time, all the teenagers in my neighborhood, and back at the office full-time for all the work-from-home people that I had been using over the past year. <laughs> so after a, a gigantic scramble of calling and texting every single person that I knew I finally found someone to take them to watch my children so I could go to work, which is fine, and they did try. So I do admire them for trying the cloth diapers. However, they are very uncomfortable with that, and, and that's okay. And so I did have to take them back again today because my sitter is still sick, so hopefully she gets better soon. But they did request disposable diapers. So I made a special trip to the store, and I found a brand at the store because normally you have to special order them online. So I was excited to find a brand at the store of plant-based disposable diapers that were made from bamboo and other renewable resources. So the entire diaper itself was compostable and the packaging that it came in was completely compostable, which is awesome. And it was only $4 more for the package compared to the normal, traditional disposable diapers made of plastic and chemicals and that all go to the landfill and don't break down for 500 years. I'm not going to lie, I was excited to find the bamboo compostable earth-friendly diapers. And then when I saw the price difference, I immediately kind of balked because that's the penny pincher in me. And then I had to convince myself it's okay to spend the extra $4 because this is the first time that I've had to buy diapers in almost three years. So I splurged. I know, four whole dollars, big spender over here. <laughs> now, whether you are spending money, saving borrowing or investing it, it is essential to know what companies are benefiting from your money. That's right. All financial institutions use our money for their own investments. And it is our responsibility to know what those companies are doing. Are they doing good or harm to the earth? And if you want to have a major impact on the earth with very little effort, then simply ask your bank or financial institution about where your money is going. And then from there, you can either stay or go to a new bank. Marco Evangelisti was very forthcoming during our interview and shared all the dirty little secrets of banks and steps we can take to make sure we want our money to go towards helping the planet instead of harming the planet. Please listen in on my interview with Marco Evangelisti. It was about a year ago, someone mentioned switching banks to better support the environment, and I was caught very off guard. I asked, how does switching my bank save the environment? They replied that banks invest our money in some pretty destructive companies, and that conversation has been sitting with me for a while, and I've been wanting to cover it on one of the podcasts, but to be honest, 
I don't know very much about banking, investments, mutual funds, and stock markets. It's all a bit overwhelming. Today, I have Marco Vangelisti, an expert in this field, joining to discuss sustainable banking. Say hello, Marco. Hello, Kalin. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. I'm a mathematician, and I landed in Berkeley 35 years ago to study economics and finance. And then I started working for a company that developed statistical and mathematical models for the quant in Wall Street. So this was like in 1985, most likely before you were born. When I was born in 86, so you're 86, right on the money. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> and at the time, you don't know, like I feel like a very old guy. We didn't have laptops. We didn't have cell phones. We didn't have email. So imagine a world without those things, right? But we were, we were programming on this mainframe computers, this uh, quantitative models that the, quant the quantum Wall Street were using. So fast forward 20 years, and then I find myself being part of those, one of those quant firms. And um, there I basically realized how finance is mostly extractive and uh, that we have to pay attention how our money is invested. And so I left the industry in 2009 and I joined uh, various movements, including the public banking movement, the Occupy Wall Street, the permaculture movement, the slow money movement, and so on. And in the process, I realized that a lot of the people that were trying to change society and the system didn't actually understand how those systems worked. And so it, I basically made it my task to explain in layman terms how those systems work. And that's uh, when I launched Essential Knowledge for Transition. And in the last 10 years, that's what I've done, is explain hopefully in very simple and accessible terms, how banking works, how the money system works, how the, econo the economy works, and how the financial system works. Good. We need more people like you because, like I said, it's, it's, it's almost like a foreign language to some people. It's kind of right over our heads. So I'm glad right. you're here today to help us out. <laughs> in your line of work, there's a fine line between making money and then you want to do it the right way. And I'm guessing that you probably had an aha moment of being the mathematician and doing investments and then realizing that there's a sustainable way to do it. Can you share what your aha moment was that made you make that transition? Yeah. So I was part of a team managing $20 billion in emerging markets equities. So we were invested all over the world, you know, in Thailand and China and Indonesia and Turkey and so on. And uh, we were managing a mutual fund that had $20 billion, you know, had a fantastic 10-year track record. In fact, we were the best emerging markets equity managers in the world with a track record of 10 years. And the interesting thing is a lot of our clients were endowments and foundations, including environmental foundations. And I remember one year we did very, very well with our portfolio and our clients loved us. You know, we were growing their funds, right? And uh, I asked myself, okay, how did we get such a beautiful return? I, you know, we got like 40% uh, return one year. And looking at the details, I found a palm oil company in Malaysia that had destroyed the habitat of the orangutan. It had destroyed tens of thousands of acres of rainforest and planted a monocrop of palm oil plants. 
And one of the reasons why they did so well, the stock price of that company went up so much that year is because they also got a lot of carbon credits for planting trees, right? So they destroyed the forest, didn't have to pay for that. But then, you know, they turn around and plant a mono crop of, uh, of palm oil plants and they got credits for planting trees. And so the they destroyed the there. habitat. Exactly. They got carbon credits, their stock price shot up and we did great that year in part because of the company. And I thought, wait a second, I've been an environmentalist. I have donated money to the same environmental foundations for whom we were managed money, managing money, right? And I was finding myself in my professional capacity managing the same money and destroying the very habitat those foundations were created to protect. And so that is the moment when I realized a couple of things. One is that some of the financial returns are extractive. They're, they come at a cost to others, in this case, the ecosystem in Malaysia. And the other one is that we live in a very opaque and uh, intermediated financial system where it's very hard to know what your money is doing out there. Because you probably have a mutual fund, you probably have, you might have invested in the fund I was managing, and you might have been very happy with the return, but you didn't know that one of the companies we invested in had just destroyed the habitat of the orangutan. And so what I, what I realized is that we really have to pay attention and know what our investments are doing out there in the world. So that's kind of my moment of awakening. Well, thank you for sharing that. Let's go ahead and take this moment to define banks. Because I think me and probably a lot of the listeners, when we hear the term bank, we immediately think of like the brick and mortar building where we go and deposit our paychecks or take money out. And when it comes to investments, if we're not actively involved in the stock market, we don't really think that we are investors. But the truth is all of this money is our money. It's just in ways that we don't see it. Like if you have a credit card or if you use PayPal, if you have a retirement fund or a life insurance fund, am I correct? All of this plays into all these investments, right? Yeah. So there are various players in the finance industry and the finance industry fundamentally does a few things. One is facilitates payments. That's the job of the banking sector. Right? You make a payment to somebody else, you need to have a checking account, you need to transfer funds. That's the job of the banks. Then you want to save for retirement, let's say. That's the job, not necessarily of banks, but of investment managers. So you, know, you might have a fund manager or an, you know, wealth managers and so on, and they take your money, invest it on your behalf. And the idea is that once you retire, you have a nice net, nest egg that you can use. Another thing that the finance industry does is manage your risk. And that is done through insurance companies. So insurance companies might be able to sell you life insurance products or property insurance products like insure your house and so on. So the, the finance sector basically have various players that offer different services. Now, banking is important because uh, the way a bank works is you need to think of it as their balance sheet. They have depositors and then they turn around and make loans. So you might go to a bank because you want to deposit your money or you might go to a bank because you want a mortgage and you need to buy a house. Correct. And so it turns out 
if we're looking at deposits, we're looking at the liability side of a bank. And if you are looking at a mortgage, we're looking at the asset side of a bank. So when you deposit money in a bank, the money is doing something out there and the bank decides what to do with that money. Most of the time, they make loans. And so the question is, who do they lend to, right? So do they lend to uh, fossil fuel companies and companies doing fracking? So if you think about the largest banks in the United States, uh, Bank of America, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, and JP Morgan, Chase, and so on, they have done about $2 trillion worth of lending to fossil fuel companies in the last five, six years. And so if you're saying, I don't want to be participating in creating a bigger problem with climate change, one thing you might want to consider is not giving your money to those financial institutions because they will turn around and use those uh, funds in ways that might be contrary to your own personal values. That's why, for example, I have a credit union because a credit union is an interesting banking entity, so to speak, because it's a nonprofit. So all the credit unions are nonprofit financial institutions run for the benefit of their members. And the members are usually the depositors. So they're not trying to maximize their profit, which means you might get a better interest on your deposits or you might get a lower interest if you borrow money from them. And they are also democratically controlled. So you could actually vote for the board of directors of a credit union. So that's why I like banking with a credit union. Oh, I use a credit union as well. So now I feel really good because <laughs> I was worried. I was like, I have no idea what my bank does. <laughs> awesome. That's good. <laughs> when it comes to the terms, no harm investing or impact investing, is there a difference or are they the same thing? Let's start from socially responsible investing. Uh, this started maybe 50, 60 years ago with uh, faith institutions. And they were managing the pension money of their congregation, right? Their priests and their nuns and so on. And they realized, hey, wait, I don't want to invest our money in uh, sin stocks. So, you know, at the time, the, the socially responsible movement started with faith institution not being willing to invest in tobacco, firearm, gambling, and weapons. So they basically said, we don't want to invest in these companies. So, you know, some mutual funds were developed where they screened out the sinners. And then other criteria came into the fore when, once we realized that uh, global warming was a big problem and the fossil fuel companies were involved in that. Then now we have fossil fuel free funds, right? So that's kind of the, the second step in the evolution of social responsible investing. Uh, impact investing, generally speaking, is, uh, and I don't particularly like the term because in reality, every investment is an impact investment. So it has an impact one way or the other, like the investments we were making in that Malaysian palm oil company had an impact, right? It <laughs> destroyed the habitat. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But in general, the term impact investment means it's an investment that is trying to solve a social or environmental problem. And uh, for example, a lot of impact investments might be in the renewable energy space. In my view, we have to be a little bit careful because some impact investments, in my view, are still harmful investments. And let me give you an example. I know of a solar 
installation in Mexico that was considered an impact investment. But then if you look at the details, they displaced the local you know, indigenous population. They were providing no benefits to the local community, but they made a lot of money for the investors. So now, is that a positive investment or not? Right? It's called an impact investment, but uh, a lot of the investors that invested were not aware of what was happening. And frankly, was an investment that was doing some harm. So I have a different classification for investments, where I start to say most of the investments we make are unaware and possibly extractive. If all the investments we do are through mutual funds, for example, we're investing in large multinational corporations, mostly, and they need to maximize earnings, they might cut some corners. They might not pay their workers enough. They might burn the forest in the Amazon, uh, right? So it's, we, we don't know what those companies are necessarily doing. So most of our investments may be unaware, possibly extractive. The next step is aware investing, meaning you know where your money is. For example, if you buy a share or 100 shares of Apple, you know where your money is. You've invested in Apple, right? Or you might invest in Tesla. Now, the question is, is an Apple investment or an investment in Tesla a no-harm investment? That is a tougher question and is probably subjective. You could say, I love Apple products. I buy a new phone every year. And, you know, I'm so happy with the design and the feel. You know, of course, that's a no-harm investment. Or you could say, well, you know, if you look at the supply chain, they produced these phones in the Foxconn complex at the time, like a few years ago, they were putting nets outside the windows because people were committing suicide. The conditions were so horrendous that people were killing themselves, right? And so mm, they are probably improving a little bit right now, but, you know, you have to know how those phones were put together and by whom and what were the conditions. Uh, the other thing you could say is, well, the business model of Apple is electronic obsolescence. Every couple of years, you have to change the phone. And so where does all this electronic waste go, right? And so for some people, investing in Apple may be a harmful investment, right? So it's a little bit subjective. So, you know, there's unaware, there's aware, at least you know where the money is. Then there is no harm, like you know where the money is, and you have a pretty good confidence that it's not doing harm out there. Let me give you an example, which is a traditional investment. Let's imagine you invest in a state bond. Uh, you are in, uh, which state are you in? Indiana. In Indiana. So Indiana, uh, I'm sure, raises money through bond issuance. And what they do with the money usually is they fix roads, they build parks. So you could say, well, an Indiana uh, bond is probably, well, you're aware because you know where the money is. And it's probably no harm because, you know, the state of Indiana is building something that is good for the population. So the next step is impact the way I define it. Now I change the terminology and I use the term positive investments. Positive investments are those where you're aware, you know, they're doing no harm and they're trying to address some problems out there. And I want to give you an example, actually, that is open to all investors and everybody who's listening to your um, podcast can invest. Let's imagine we've recognized that we've treated people of color poorly in this country. And that is maybe an understatement. Um, there was something called slavery way back when. Now, you know, it seems like uh, 
there are still a lot of barriers for especially entrepreneurs of color to get access to capital. Well, there is a company called C-Note, was started by a friend of mine, and they raise money through the internet. Uh, people can go to mycnote.com. And what they do with the money once they receive it is they fund the work of CDFIs. Those are community development finance institutions around the country that are helping and funding uh, entrepreneurs of color and women entrepreneurs. You know, it's a nice thing. It pays 2.5%. It's liquid. You know, they have quarterly liquidity. So that's an example of an investment where you know where your money is, is with C-Note, and they are invested in a few CDFIs, and you know those CDFIs. And you're trying to address a problem. And the problem is a lot of Black and female entrepreneurs in this country have difficulty accessing capital. So that's an example of that. There's also another category that I called restorative investing, where it's kind of in between philanthropy and investing proper, which is you're investing in things that are, you really care about and you're not that concerned whether the money comes back or not. Let's imagine your, you know, your friend is launching a new startup to, I don't know, uh, collect all the plastic in the world and turn it into beautiful objects, for example, or clean up the ocean. You participate in that, you know that probably you're going to lose your money, but nevertheless, you want to do it because you want to support your friend and uh, the project is really worthy. So that's basically restorative investing is uh, another category of investing. So I don't know if this helps in terms of understanding you know, the various investments. Now, think about an investment in a publicly traded company. Yes, you're aware if you buy a stock of a particular company, whether it's uh, a harm investment or not, that's up for discussion and depends also on your belief system and, uh, you know, what you care about. That makes a lot of sense. So I do appreciate you explaining the difference. Are there other criteria that can make a financial institution sustainable? Like if they have solar panels on the roof or if all the employees drive Tesla, like are there other criteria that would help out or it's really just all about the investments? Well, you know, there is an organization called the Global Alliance for Banking on Values. And so um, it's, uh, the, the name is gabv.org. That's the organization. And this is a, an international network of bankers that uh, have agreed that it's important to operate with great integrity. And so there are some companies there that um, your viewers can find. Uh, One that I like a lot is Beneficial State Bank. So Beneficial State Bank is based in California. It is a CDFI, meaning it is uh, a a financial institution supported by the US Treasury that is trying to address problem populations. And uh, the interesting thing about the Beneficial State Bank, it is owned by a nonprofit. So the profit motive is not there because whatever profits uh, happen, they are given to the nonprofit, which then distributes in various cool programs for uh, the local community. So at least the kind of the, the, the profit motive is not going to you know, make them do things that you might not agree with. The other thing is they tend to support lending for renewable. Uh, some banks that are considered green banks might give preferential interests uh, in terms of loaning Uh, to people who want to put solar panels or buy an electric vehicle versus a conventional vehicle and so on. You can also look at a bank and look at both 
who are the depositors, who are their clients, and what type of loans they make. And uh, the other, the third thing you can look at is how is their operation? Do do they have values? Do they have uh, you know transparency? One of the dimension I like is the B Corporation certification. So there is a a company called B Lab, and they put companies through a pretty rigorous questionnaire and analysis to understand how they're operating, both in terms of interfacing with uh, society at large, their customers, their suppliers, and so on, but also how they interact with the environment. So whether they have good environmental practices and in terms of their governments, you know, how they, they run, um, you know, are there checks and controls and so on. So those are good things to look at. One is the list in the Global Alliance for Banking on Values that can be found in, you know, the website gabv.org. Uh, there are a number of credit unions there as well, and uh, some other banks that I like. So that's certainly a good thing that uh, your um, audience can can do. So the reason I asked about if there are other versions of what would make a bank sustainable, I was trying to get at how do I find out if my bank is sustainable, and how do you find out where your bank is putting your money? Right. That's that is a very good question. And you can just go to the branch and say, for example, you know, the nice thing about credit unions is that they know, you know, where they put the money, because most of the time, most of the credit unions are lending to their members. So they lend either, you know, for personal consumption or to buy cars or to buy homes, right, or to get a student loan. So you know that the lending of the credit union is usually to support the needs of its members. If it is a, a bank, let's imagine you're thinking about uh, Beneficial State Bank or uh, you know Lead Bank or Southern Bank Corp. Uh, those are all on the list of these banks that are you know values-based banks. You could ask them, for example, what percentage of their book of business is with local businesses? Because one of the problems we have right now is that you know if you think about banking from like 1923 to 1970s, the 70s, most of the banks were doing most of their lending to businesses. In fact, a lot of people still think that banks lend to businesses. That's not the majority of their business. Right now, the majority of the business of banks is lending into real estate. It's mortgage lending. And that's in part responsible for the unaffordability crisis in a lot of uh desirable cities. Like here in the Bay Area, I couldn't afford to buy a house now. You know, it's like uh, you have to spend one million or above for just a two-bedroom house. And it's very, very unaffordable. Part of that is because banks lend a lot into the real estate sector. And there's another little trick that maybe we don't have time to get into, which is banks actually create the money they lend which is a little bit surprising to a lot of people, but that's exactly what banks do. They create brand new money every time they originate a loan. And so you can imagine that a lot of banks creating money to lend into the real estate sector creates an asset bubble, create uh, an expansion of the prices. But asking you know, what type of lending, and in fact, a lot of the banks may even have uh, financial statements 
And so you can actually look at their book of business and see how much of that is in real estate, how much is in uh, business lending or com commercial lending. And you can also ask whether they have a particular, you know, small business lending program. So that would be one thing I would do. You know, I would just go into a, a bank, uh, especially if you're considering, you know, becoming a customer and saying, I want to learn a little bit more about your book of business. You know, I'm going to deposit some money with you. I want to know what you're going to do with that and who you're lending to. So very large banks, for example, we know are lending to frackers and to, you know, tar sand operations and to uh, the deforestation of the Amazons, right? So we don't want to support those banks. Excellent advice. That's very helpful. Now I know what to ask my bank. <laughs> so that helps for the money that I can control. But when it comes to, for people who are employed, many employers are going to offer retirement and life insurance and other forms of banking and financial assets, I guess. And so as an employee, I'm kind of torn between what my employer offers because that's going to be easy and affordable banking and, but maybe not sustainable compared to, and it's also going to be discounted through the employer. Or if I go and like do my own private retirement and my own private life insurance, which is going to be significantly much more expensive. So how do I find a better balance? Well, first of all, if you're working for an employer and the employer is matching your contributions into a 401k, for example, so they say if you put, if you save a thousand bucks, you know, the employer will match it in some way, absolutely take advantage of that. That's one way to build your nest egg, so to speak. But one thing you could ask is that um, your employer is what are the options? What are the funds I can invest in? And a no-brainer is to ask for a platform, a 401k platform, where you can, for example, invest in socially responsible funds. That would be the very first step. There's also something that a lot of people don't know, that once they leave that job, they could actually transfer those assets out of the prior employer 401k and put it into a self-directed IRA. So this is a tax-sheltered uh, structure that allows you to make your own investments, not necessarily into mutual funds or stocks, but you can invest in some impact investments and in your local community if you want and so on. So my entire portfolio, for example, including my retirement money, is in self-directed IRAs and uh, something called solo 401k, which is a similar thing for solopreneurs, where I control exactly uh, my investments and I know where they are. But I understand at the beginning, if you're starting out and you're part of a large corporation and they offer a 401k plan, all you can do is really talk to them and say, hey, can we go with, uh, I don't know, there's a company called Social 401k that is set up so that they have a lot of, you know, sustainability oriented funds into that plan. So the best choice for you is really to have a conversation with the HR department of your employer and say, hey, can we move our plan in a direction that is a little bit more sustainable? Excellent advice. That's very good. Thank you. Now that we've discussed all of the issues with banking and all of that jazz, we've touched on some solutions, but you have a company, Essential Knowledge for Transition, that offers many more solutions when it comes to financial institutions and where to put our money. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah. So Essential Knowledge for Transition, I kind of uh, referred to it at the beginning of the podcast. 
I was motivated to start that after I joined all these movements, as I said, the public banking movement, slow money, permaculture, and so on, Occupy Wall Street, right? I saw all these very well-intentioned people that felt that we needed to change, especially at the time, if you remember, in 2008, we bailed out the banks, and we didn't bail out anybody else. So the banks were fine, thank you very much. And the rest had to struggle with uh, a weak economy, you know, difficulty maintaining one's job and so on. And so there was a lot of anger. In fact, even the Tea Party movement was uh, a response and a reaction to the government bailing out banks. Right? There was a lot of anger towards the banks. There was even the movement uh, of, you know, move your bank, move your money and so on. So what I realized is that a lot of people don't really understand how those systems work. A lot of people don't know that, for example, banks create the money that they lend. Um, And a lot of people don't understand, you know, the money is a hierarchical system. The money that the banks create is used by us, but they cannot use that form of money to pay their own accounts. And so uh, there was a a lot of uh, things that people did not understand about the economic system and so on. And a lot of people uh, you know, feel intimidated by the subject, right? It seems like finance is so complex. It co- the economic system is so complex. A lot of people say, oh, I didn't get an MBA. I didn't study economics. Uh, you know, I'm a liberal arts major. I, I will never be able to understand that stuff. And my belief is that we really need to understand how those systems work because then we would be empowered to challenge them and transform them. So that's why I started Essential Knowledge for Transition. And what I was offering at the beginning is talks. I would talk to anybody who would listen uh, so that I could explain to them how the economic system works and why you know, wealth and power gets more and more concentrated. How does the financial system work and why it's extractive in nature and what are the alternatives? So uh, I was at the beginning teaching you know, lectures and courses. And the last couple of years, I really focused a little bit more on investor education. And as you probably realized, we are we always are told to save, but we might not really understand a lot, the difference between like banking and investing or, you know, insurance companies and other intermediaries. And so, um, you know, I, my effort has been to empower regular folks with the knowledge necessary to get a sense for how the systems work and especially when it comes to investing, you know, what can we do about it? And the first thing we can do about it is become aware, know where our money is. And I think it is the right of everybody to know what their, you know, where their money sleeps at night. And I sleep much better because I know where my money sleeps at night, you know, and I know it's not, you know, doing damage out there. And unfortunately, it's quite hard to be sure that your money is not damaging not doing damage out there. That's um, mostly what I do is I teach classes. So I, uh, I'm i teaching a class in uh, online uh, in May called Towards Aware and No Harm Investing, which explains a little bit how the financial system works and how we can rethink investing and how we can move in the direction of aware and no harm. And your class starts May 3rd? The class starts May 3rd, yes. And, All right, and this uh, episode is launching May 3rd. We're recording it 
April 21st, but it's launching May 3rd. So if you're listening to it today, May 3rd, you got to sign up today. <laughs> right. They are uh, fast on their feet. They might be able to do that. Anyhow. Um, yeah. And I offer that and I offer that uh, a couple of times a year. So where do they go to sign up for your class? Uh, they can go to ek4t.com, which is my website, and then go what we do and courses, and they can find information about that. Or I can give you a link to the course that you can put in the notes if you have um, show notes. Yes, I, I sure do. That, that would yeah. be great. I'd be happy to put your link there. Perfect. And your class is for individuals, but it's also for financial investors as well? Uh well, it's for fin- just for individual investors at this point, uh, the, the May class. I do offer another course for financial advisors that want to understand the space of you know, no harm and impact investing. But uh, the course will be in September, and it's uh, offered through the Money Quotient University. So it's some time out. That's all right. I still have a financial advisor because a lot of this is over my head. So when I got a grown-up job outside of babysitting and lifeguarding. And I, and then I got insurance and retirement and I had to figure out what the heck to do with my money. I got a financial advisor. So I always let him guide me on what I'm supposed to do, but I'm definitely going to recommend to him to take your course because now I'm going to start asking him a bunch of hard, heavy questions about where my money is going. <laughs> very good. Very good. And uh, you know, I, I've been very uh, excited about the fact that uh, a number of the financial advisors that took my course are changing their practice to move towards aware and no harm investing. Now I know a couple of financial advisors that are doing 100% aware and no harm investing for their clients. So that's kind of exciting. Do you happen to have a promotional code for the listeners of the podcast? Oh, yes. I created a code called START, since we're talking about starting on, on the path to sustainability. And uh, yeah, they can sign up with a 20% discount to, uh, to my course if they want to do that. Excellent. Thank you so much for doing that. That's wonderful. If listeners have more questions that maybe I didn't think to ask today, what is the best way for them to get a hold of you? Well, the best way is my email, which is info at ek4t.com. Four is number four, and it's short for essential knowledge for transition. So ek4t.com. And so info at ek4t.com is the best way. Awesome. And do you have any social media where listeners can follow along to learn more and stay up to date with your classes and show their support for you? I post very, very infrequently, but I will post about my uh, class and I'm both on Facebook and on Twitter. I think my Twitter um, at Vangelisti Marco. And your Facebook is, is it Marco Vangelisti or Vangelisti Marco? No, no, no. It's essential knowledge for transition. Oh, okay. For Facebook and for LinkedIn? Uh, for LinkedIn is Marco Vangelisti. Thank you. Thank you. Before you go, I would like to play a quick game, kind of how to get to know you a little bit better. Are you up for that? Yeah, sure. I'm All ready. Right. Do you know what an unpopular opinion is? Uh, yes. heard of that term? 80%, 80% of mine are unpopular. Okay. <laughs> All right. So I wanted to do a fun little exercise where we share three of our unpopular opinions, which is basically something that you don't like that a lot of other people do. And that's why your opinion is now unpopular. I'll go first. 
So I do not like Oreo cookies. I know a lot of other people do. I really don't like them. All right. Hmm. What would be something un un unpopular? Oh, yeah. I eat salad in the morning. Oh, for so breakfast? Yes. And at the beginning, like, they were so shocked. But now I, I'm starting seeing, you know, some salads in the morning in the menus of restaurants. Uh, hey, trends. It was like five, six years, but it was very unpopular at the time when I started. The next one is I really don't like reality TV. I don't care for the Kardashians, any of the housewives shows or teen mom. I've not seen a single episode of any of it. And the commercials that I see are, they do not attract me at all. <laughs> wow. Well, we're on the same line. I don't even own a TV. I don't have a TV. I haven't had it in uh, uh, 30 years. In fact, actually, I can tell a funny story. I moved into a place and, you know, some people that want to rob houses, keep an eye on, you know, moves so that because they know people are not set up to with all the alarm systems and so on. So I moved in, into this place. And after a couple of months, the one box I hadn't opened was the one that contained my TV that somehow I had in, inherited because I was not watching it. So when they came in uh, to rob me, they robbed everything except the TV because I didn't realize it was still inside the box. So that was the only piece of equipment that I didn't need and the only one that didn't get stolen. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I'm sorry to hear that you got robbed. That's terrible. Oh, that's all right. That's all right. It's only stuff. And the last one that I have is I don't care for boy bands. So at my school, like junior high and high school growing up, it was all about NSYNC versus Backstreet Boys and 98 Degrees. And all the girls were obsessed with the boy bands and they had the posters all on the walls of their bedrooms and they would write like Mrs. Justin Timberlake in their notebooks and stuff. And I just didn't get it. I was like, all right, the music's good, but I'm not going crazy over it. <laughs> so I thought I was weird. <laughs> That's cool. Well, one thing I found that uh, I actually like here in this, in this country is that there is a lot of mycophobia. People are afraid of mushrooms. And I like picking mushrooms, like going out in the forest and collect my own mushrooms. And the fact that so many people are afraid of mushrooms means there are more for me to collect. I kind of grew up in the mountains in Italy, and that's what we used to do when we were kids. We were collecting mushrooms, and then we would cook them and eat them. And here in the United States, uh, you know, a lot of people wouldn't even dare about picking mushrooms from the forest and eat them. Wow. You know, here in Indiana, we have morel mushrooms that are very... They're very prized if you can find oh, yeah. mushrooms and they sell for top money. But the problem is they look extremely similar to other mushrooms that are poisonous. So you have to know what you're doing, <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> which exactly. I don't know what I'm doing. So I won't eat any, I won't pick any mushrooms or eat them because I don't know what's safe and what's not. But I also am not a fan of mushrooms because to me, it's a fungus. And I'm like, I know it's healthy. I'm a dietitian by trade. So I'm like, I know it's healthy. I know it's good but it's weird that it's a fungus and I can't get over that. So you're right. I'm on board with the, <laughs> the phobia. <laughs> but you know, actually the fungus, uh, the, the, uh, the fungi are very similar to us in the sense that they cannot create their own food like plants do. You know, plants create their own food through photosynthesis. Mushrooms cannot. And like us, they breathe oxygen and they exhale CO2 and they depend on others to get their nutrients. 
In fact, a lot of them are in relationship with uh, the roots of plants that are called mycorrhizal uh, fungi that depend on the plant providing them sugars and exudates that they can generate. And in, in exchange, they provide some nutrients and some water and so on. So it's interesting how uh, we are more similar to mushrooms than we are to plants. Wow. I did not know that. Thank you for sharing. Now I have some relations to mushrooms. They're a little less scary now. Yeah, they breed <laughs> like you. <laughs> well, it has been a blast interviewing you. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to talk to all of us on the podcast and explain all the complexities of banking and sustainable banking. And now we are armed with knowledge to go out and start talking to our banks and our financial advisors and start making a difference with our money. Very good. Thank you, Colleen, for inviting me on your show. All right. Thank you. Have a good one. Bye. Thank you again, Marco. And if you're quick, you can sign up for his class today. And if you're not so quick, just follow him at Essential Knowledge for Transition, and he'll let you know when the next class is, and you can sign up for that one. Oh, I don't want to forget. Before we go, we need to draw a new challenge for the week. How have you guys been doing on your weekly challenges so far? Hopefully doing pretty good. This one is invest in rechargeable batteries. <laughs> I couldn't agree more. Now I do need to do that. <laughs> because before we would buy a big gigantic thing of batteries at a bulk store like Costco or Sam's Club or BJ's if you're down in the southeast region of the United States. And it would last for years. And then we had kids and all of a sudden, we were just flying through batteries left and right. So that is actually on my list now. We need to invest in rechargeable batteries because our kids turn toys on, play with them, and then leave them on as they walk away and go to bed. And later on, we're picking up and we lift up a blanket and we see a little light-up toy that's the light still going and spinning. Ah, oh, Jiminy. So we got to turn it off and put it away. Yes, so rechargeable batteries. They're good whether you have kids or not. They're a good idea. That is definitely an easy challenge. Well, I guess that's an oxymoron, but <laughs> we can all accomplish that by the end of the week. Be sure to come back next week and check out Stephanie Miller. She is all about having a big impact with little effort. She shares easy tips for all of us busy people on what to do that will be totally worth the little amount of time that we have <laughs> that will still make a big difference. Thank you again, Sustainer Nation, for listening in on another episode of Starting Sustainability. Continue to have a wonderful rest of your day, your week, your month, or even your year. Thank you, friends. <laughs> and I will talk to you all again next time. Bye. Bye.